we're opening our Bibles again to Genesis chapter 4, and we will not conclude this section today. We'll continue to work our way through that next time. And so from last week, we looked at the first family after Adam and Eve had been exiled from the garden. They set up shop for themselves. Life continued outside of the garden. God told them in a day that they would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They would die. And although that death did not happen immediately, it set in course action that would eventually result in their death. And a part of what I think is probably not so obvious to us is that when God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave to them a single prohibition, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he did not forbid them or prohibit them from eating of the tree of life. Which means had they stayed in the garden, they could have lived forever. Death would have never been their experience. But having been cast out of the garden and separated from the tree of life, God's promise that they would surely die will come to pass. They would die a physical death, but they immediately died a spiritual death and were then separated from God's presence in the tabernacle garden and then forced to live their lives outside of the garden on their own as God would continue to be faithful to them and provide for them. So after they have gone out on their own, life continues after their egregious sin. Cain and Abel are born. It's an indication of the promise being fulfilled that God gave to them upon their creation where he said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And that promise was not forfeited by their sin. And so when God pronounces the judgment upon Cain... He immediately turns to his wife and names her Eve, saying, You will be the mother of all living. It's an indication of God's grace to them, of Adam's belief in God, and of their continuing life outside of the garden. So we looked at the contrasting realities of the two sons, Cain and Abel. One, Cain was a farmer. Second one, Abel was a shepherd. They also were brought were told to bring to the Lord an offering from the fruits of their work. And so they each brought an offering. Abel's was pleasing to God. It was of the firstlings. It was of the fat portions. And the terminology that we find in the description of the offering gives the impression that Cain just brought something. It was not very noteworthy. It was not acceptable to God. It did not fit with whatever it was God instructed them to bring as an offering, even though that is not lined out for us in Scripture. And so upon the submission of these offerings, God accepts Abel's and he rejects Cain's. And so Cain's response to this rejection is that he was seething with anger, his countenance fell, and in the light of that rejection of God's refusal to accept Cain's offering, God gives to him an encouragement If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And it was an indication that if you repent of your error and do the right thing, you will feel better about pleasing me and you will find joy in doing that which I have commanded you to do. But be warned that if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So upon hearing these words, we're not given any detail, but we find out in the next verse that Cain is in the field with his brother Abel, and he kills him, rejecting the encouragement of God and ignoring the warning of God. And the sin that was crouching at the door has, in fact, 
overtaken him. So we continue now. Number four in our ongoing outline with the confrontation that is now going to take place between God and Cain. And we're going to read together verses 9 through 16. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to Cain, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So as we look at the confrontation, it begins here in the first part of verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now this phrase is very reminiscent of what God said when he came into the garden after Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit. And now he comes to Cain to confront him with his sin. Again, this confrontation is designed to elicit a confession and then repentance. It is not a confrontation to hand out indictment. So God has already spoke to Cain. Cain has rejected and ignored the words of Cain, gone out and killed his brother. And now confronting Cain, he asks him, Where is Abel your brother? So when God appeared in the garden to Adam and Eve, he says, Where are you? Here he says, Where is your brother? Although these two events are separated by at least 15 to 20 years, perhaps even longer, the reader should say, This sounds very familiar to me. And it sounds familiar because that is exactly what Moses, the writer, wants for us to say. This sounds familiar. So it does sound familiar, and it's clear that what Moses is doing is he is connecting the sin of Adam with the sin of Cain and saying these are jointly connected based upon what God said to to, uh, Adam in the garden and what he is now going to say to us, the reader who is listening to these very familiar accounts. The sin of Cain has its origin or its roots in the sin of Adam, as does the sin of all of mankind. Our sin today has its origin in the sin of Adam, and as the reader is reading this very similar terminology, as it describes Cain's sin and God's confrontation, it is it is almost identical to that which takes place in the garden by Cain, excuse me, by God and Adam himself. So there's a major difference here in how each of these two individuals were responded to their individual act of sin. Now, if you remember, when God confronted Adam with his sin, God, excuse me, Adam reluctantly told the truth. I hid myself because I knew that I was naked. Then he blamed God for the woman that he gave to him. And then he blamed his wife for giving the fruit to him. 
who then blamed the serpent for coming into the garden and deceiving her. So although Adam took some responsibility, he blamed God for giving, he blamed the, the wife for giving, and she blamed the serpent for deceiving. Here, Cain tells an outright lie. He doesn't say, well, yeah, in a moment of weakness, I gave in to my anger and I did such and such. He doesn't say anything like that. Second part of verse 9, he says, to God, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? You've heard that term before, haven't you? You've heard that phrase. Am I responsible for my brother? Am I supposed to be keeping keeping up with my brother? He basically says, I don't know what happened to him. It's not my responsibility. I had no hand in wherever Abel is and whatever happened to him. Now, of course, Cain knew exactly where Abel was. And many believed that the blood and the ground that was shed by Cain was not yet dry when God confronts Abel. We don't know if he's in the field and Abel's dead body is laying there. We don't know if Cain has even buried the body. We don't know if he's back at the house. We don't have any idea. But most commentators agree that the blood is not yet dried that was shed by Cain, and here God is confronting Cain with the question, where is your brother Abel? To think that God did not know where Abel was, to have the audacity to answer God's confrontation that way, shows how stubborn, how hardened, and how truly sinful Cain really was. God is omniscient. Isn't he? God knows it all. And we often forget that God knows what we'll do before we do it. He knows what we'll say before we say it. And he knows what we'll think before we even think it. Can you imagine such a reality? This is what is described to us in Psalm 139, verses 2 through 4. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my laying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. There is not a single solitary thing that we can do or say or think that God does not know before it even happens. So instead of deflecting responsibility for the death of Abel as Adam and Eve did and the responsibility for their own sin, Cain just lies, then attempts to silence God by asking him the rhetorical question, am I my brother's keeper? He's not expecting God to answer that question. He is defiantly standing before God challenging him on this question saying, am I my brother's keeper? Is it my responsibility to look out after my brother? Imagine the tone of resentment that God would even ask this question of me. Why are you asking me? Is it my fault, my responsibility? Do I have anything to do with this? How dare you, God, ask me such a question? God does not expect an answer from God, one, because of the hardness of his heart and the depth of his sin, but the Mosaic law that would eventually come answers very specifically the question, 
that Cain asks here. We would read many, many years later at the hands of Moses in Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Likewise, the New Testament affirms this reality. Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And even Jesus himself would summarize all of the laws. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Cain's crime would have been perceived as a particularly heinous violation of the communal unity that God mandated and the Jewish nation valued and celebrated. Community implied mutual responsibility, which was the basis of the covenant's promises, how much more so even within one's own family. Cain kills his brother... Because God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's, and in doing so, rejected Cain himself. Thinking about this, what took place in the first family just a generation ago, what began as a seemingly inconsequential act of disobedience and eating of the forbidden fruit has devolved into murder within one's own family. What do we think today about someone who would have the ability to kill their own family member, their own flesh and blood? Do we not think, do we not say, that is one depraved individual? And here is exactly what Cain has done. One generation removed from the sin in the Garden of Eden. Well, God is not content with the rhetorical question that Cain has asked him and says in the beginning part of verse 10, What have you done? Does this sound familiar? This is exactly what God asks Eve after she deflects responsibility to the deception of the serpent in eating the fruit. What have you done? So God doesn't give Cain another chance to confess his sin or to tell another lie about his sin. He simply tells Cain what he already knows, the latter part of verse 10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. When God rejected Cain's offering and when Cain showed his displeasure in this rejection, God warned him that sin was crouching at his door and he needed to be aware of that and he needed to be prepared to master that desire that sin had to overtake him. This is exactly what had happened. God's indictment of Cain carries this airy personification of Abel's blood crying out to the Lord as the ground is soaking it up. Now it's interesting that there are no words from Abel recorded anywhere in the account that is given to us in the book of Genesis. The only words that we are told of is this personification of the blood of Abel crying out to the Lord, asking for revenge against the unrighteous who oppose God's work among the saints. 
Abel was killed because he offered the proper sacrifice. His offering indicated his faith in God, his desire to please God, and God accepting his offering as righteousness. Abel's faithful and righteous standing is honored in the New Testament, and the lack of words expressed by him in the Old Testament are verbalized for us in this personification of his, through his blood, and also by what is attributed to him in the New Testament, as Steve read this morning in Hebrews 11:4. By faith, Abel offered to Cain a better sacrifice, offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, to which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. The righteousness and the faithfulness of Abel still speaks through God's word, even though he didn't utter a single recorded word in all of Scripture. So the righteousness of of Abel expressed in his offering is accepted by God. This acceptance enraged Cain, whose offering was rejected because it didn't meet the standard, even though Cain likely knew what that standard was. And instead of repenting and listening to the encouragement of God... He continued in his seething state of angriness and then went out and killed his brother. Continuing the outline, number five, we look at the curse. The curse begins in verse 11. God says, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your, to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So like the serpent, Cain is also cursed. This is the first recorded curse from God placed upon a human, and the curse indicates the severity of the sin and the crime that Cain has committed against God. Cain's guilt is emphasized by the direct accusation, your brother's blood from your own hand. You know, Cain was a farmer. He probably had some makeshift farming implements, but he didn't have a gun. He probably didn't have a bow and arrow. He probably didn't have any weaponry. And so when he took his brother's life, he took it with his own hands. Whether he choked him, whether he bashed his head in with something, whether he tacked him to the ground and killed him, we don't really know what took place. But even today, we say someone who takes a life by his own hands is considered to be the coldest and the most heinous kind of murder that one could commit. I I just couldn't imagine placing my hands upon someone and watching their life ebb away, and yet this is exactly what Cain has done to his brother, because God accepted his brother's sacrifice. The language here, you are under a curse, is the same as the curse that is issued upon the serpent in Genesis 3.14, where God says, cursed are you above all the livestock. So the curse makes the connection between the prophesied battle that is going to take place between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So just as Moses has connected the sin of Adam and the sin of Cain, he's also joining together the curse of the serpent and the curse of Cain, this enmity that is going to be lived out throughout generation after generation as the enmity that was promised between her seed and your seed, speaking to the serpent. So both the serpent and Cain are 
murderers who receive the same retribution from God. Like father, like seed. Like father, like son. Like father, like seed. This is a connection that Moses is making for his readers that just as the serpent was cursed, so is seed. So is Cain going to also be be cursed in a likeness of seed. So the curse is very specific application for Cain. We see this beginning in verse 12. God says, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So when the earth or the ground yields forth its strength to you. It's talking about the harvest that is going to come from whatever is produced by the ground. And so by cursing it, it means that Cain is no longer going to enjoy the produce from cultivating and farming the ground, and it's not going to provide its strength to him. You think about the punishment that came upon Adam, who is going to now cultivate the ground that was filled with thorns and thistles, as we were so well acquainted with yesterday on our work day, it was going to bring intense hardship and labor to to Adam to yield forth its fruit. Now, the curse is that it's not going to produce any fruit for you at all. Incredibly different kinds of hardship that is now imposed upon Cain than was upon Adam. Also... If you remember, Adam's, the center of Adam's life was found in being a caretaker for the garden. It was joyful work. It was filled with an example of God's goodness and faithfulness. Now as he was going to be set out from the garden, expelled from it, great hardship in that. So the curse was going to be experienced by Adam in the center of his responsibility and Cain, as a farmer, was going to experience an even more difficult hardship in the center of his existence as a farmer. So because Cain has polluted the ground with innocent blood, he has driven from it, and what the earth will produce for him, as his parents were likewise driven from the garden. So Cain, the farmer, will no longer enjoy the fruit of the ground, and because of this, he is consigned to being a vagrant and a wanderer in the land. It's a significant departure from God's punishment against Adam. As bad as the the punishment was against Adam for his sin, even more so for Cain and his. So here, because the land will not respond to Cain's cultivation, of it, his sentencing is perpetual exile. It is far more severe, and it explains why Cain's response to it was one of absolute rejection. In later Israel, possession of land was an indication of covenant with God. The promised land was the nation of Israel's source of hope. It was an indication that God was with them, that God was blessing them, and that God was going to continue to provide for them. Later, when they were exiled from their land because of their disobedience, they experienced what it meant to be cut off from the Lord, and it was that experience that would eventually bring about their repentance, and God would then smite the enemies of Israel. He would enable them to come back into the land and regain the experience of God's blessing, of God's habitation with them. And so this connection between land and covenant is really begun here where Cain is now driven out just as Adam was driven out from the garden. 
the tabernacle garden that he experienced. And so Cain's future existence is to be one of great hardship driven from the land and what it would produce for him. He will be cut off from God, from his parents, and from their subsequent offspring. He will have no real home, no real land of his own, since he is consigned to be a wandering vagrant. His life as a farmer is over, since the earth will not respond to his efforts. Now pause very quickly, and if you were to read ahead in the continuation of his life in Genesis 4, we see that he actually does set up stake. He does actually establish a city. This is in rejection and rebellion of the curse that God pronounced upon him. It was rebellion of the life that God had relegated him to, and we'll look at that in much more detail next week. So Cain was supposed to be a wandering vagrant, but he sets up shop in rebellion against God's command and punishment for him. But as we continue through our passage here today, number six in our outline, Cain's response to what it is that God has said to him. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Now, in the same way Cain rejected God's rejection of his offering, he now rejects God's punishment for the murder of his brother. So if we go back and think about what happened, Cain brings some kind of an offering to God. God says, I don't accept it. This is not up to standard. I reject you and your offering, but be encouraged. If you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. Be careful, because sin is crouching at your door, and if you not, its desire is for you, but you must master it. God rejected, excuse me, Abel rejected God's rejection of the offering he provided, and in the same way, he's rejecting God's punishment. We see this fleshed out in the passage that follows our study here today. So he rejects God's punishment for the murder of his brother, and there's some debate here about what verse 13 actually means. Is Cain being repentant, or is he feeling sorry for himself? It's the same kind of dilemma when Judas betrayed Jesus and then went out and hung himself. And some say, well, that was a sign of repentance. No, it was a sign of his remorse for what he was going to experience, remembering what was said of him as the son of perdition. So the challenge is found in the words punishment and the word bear, especially when those two words are joined together in the Hebrew. So punishment is sometimes translated iniquity or sin, and bear is sometimes translated as forgive. So if this is the way it's to be understood, then Cain would be expressing remorse over his sin and asking for God's forgiveness. So rabbinic interpretation took this verse in this way, but posed it as a question, is my guilt too great to be forgiven? So when you put together these two words, the words, the phrase punishment and bear, it could be expressed as forgiveness, as we would see here in Exodus 34.7. Speaking of God who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. What makes this challenging is the word punishment and bear joined together in the same phrase can also 
refer to punishment for sin. We would see this in Numbers 14.34. So according to the number of days which you spied out in the land, 40 days for every day you shall build for excuse me for every day you shall bear your guilt a year even 40 years and you will know my opposition so here punishment of sin is joined together it is not necessarily forgiven but it is dealt with so the key to understanding verse 13 and the complexity that is there in the hebrew phrase is actually found in the context as expressed through verse 14 so verse 14 says from Cain, this punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the context of what Cain is saying in face of the punishment that God is handing down. Cain protests that his penalty is too much to bear. It is just too harsh. He argues that isolation from God's protective presence effectively results in a death sentence for him. So there's a significant difference between Cain's response to God's decree of punishment than there is in Adam. So remembering God told Adam the ground would be cursed thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow you will feed yourself and he will one day return to dust from whence he was actually created and upon hearing this what did Adam say Adam did not say God this is too much God this is unfair God I learned my lessons he didn't say anything of the kind he basically turned to his wife and says you will be called Eve because you will be the mother of all living when we looked at we said well that seems really odd that seems out of place but this is Adam's faith-filled response to the punishment that God is handing down, understanding that God is going to allow he and Eve to continue in the, in the promise of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. He accepted God's punishment and expressed faith in God's continued provision for him. Cain, on the other hand, simply complains that the punishment is too great. This is too much. It's not, this is not even right. I don't deserve this. Yeah, I killed my brother, but this is what Cain is actually doing. You're driving me from the ground, meaning that he will be left to himself, he will be forgotten by God, and in so doing this, God, you are, in, you are inflicting upon me a death sentence. So even though there is only a single family on the earth at this very moment, it's just now Adam and Eve and himself, Cain, Cain's fear for his life recognizes the expansion of civilization over his lifetime during which there will be many opportunities for retribution by someone avenging Abel's blood. It may be a brother that Cain would never meet. It may be a nephew that Cain has no knowledge of. It may be a distant relation to the children that will come to Adam and Eve after Cain is banished from the land. He's concerned about this death sentence because he is alone, removed from the face of God, expelled from the land where his family is going to live. And in this moment, Cain recognizes being exiled from community is a very, very bad thing, even though he doesn't fully understand the value of community at this time. 
Without God's protection, he is left to his own. He is left on his own to survive apart from the presence of God. And this is just too much for Cain to even imagine. God, Cain is saying, this is, this is unjust, this is unfair. So despite his deserved expulsion, the Lord does not leave him helpless. And this is where we end, where we begin as we look at the first family, and that is God's grace. Verse 15, So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Now, again, we have a little bit of a challenge here. The word in my translation, the New American Standard, uses the word therefore. And in other translations, you might see the word not so. So using the word therefore makes it sound like God agrees with Cain that the punishment is too swift and too severe. Therefore, I'm going to reconsider, okay, this is what I'm going to do instead. The word not so makes it sound like God is simply correcting Cain's perspective and his understanding. And it's preferable to see this as a correction of Cain's perspective and not a reduction of the punishment. Cain is still going to be exiled. He is still going to bear fruit as a farmer. He's still going to be alone and separated from the face of God. But he will also live knowing that he will not die at the hands of someone who is avenging the blood of his brother. So what God is saying here, in a sense, is vigilante justice will be dealt with by me, completely indicated by the sevenfold pronouncement that you see here. And so life and death are the prerogative of God, not the prerogative of Cain, not the prerogative of anyone who would seek after Cain to take his life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of retribution. And as we read this account, you and I might be very quick to say, well, Cain deserves to die. Doesn't he deserve to die? Life and death is God's prerogative. Vengeance is not ours. It is his, and it is his alone. So to ensure that Cain would not die at the hands of someone out for vengeance, God gives to Cain a sign. Now, there are no sh- there's no shortage of speculation and theory about what this sign might be. Something like a mark on the forehead, some kind of a tattoo, some kind of a hairstyle, some kind of a deformity physically. We really don't know. The Bible doesn't say. And so this is where speculation is completely fruitless because we don't know. We can only say there's some kind of a sign here. We don't know if it's visible. We don't know if it's to be understood figuratively. We just don't know. So this mark is a sign of safety for Cain's benefit, not of a curse. It is an indication of grace to this murderer who had the audacity to kill his brother because God rejected his offering. God's mark, whatever it might have been, was amazing grace to an individual who did not deserve it, who could never earn it, Just like Adam and Eve were given an indication of grace as they were not instantly killed and God didn't say, let me try again. And the same grace carries through to us today. Thinking about the depth of our sin, think about how difficult it would even be to enumerate the category of sin we would be guilty of. 
And God says, when you come to me by faith in the work of my Son on the cross, I wipe it all clean. Cain's life still belonged to God. He bore God's image, however disfigured that image might have been. And this was the great, the greatest mercy that God could do and does for the unrepentant. Think about this. Cain was unrepentant in God's rejection of his offering. Cain was unrepentant at the death of Abel at his own hands. And the greatest act of mercy that God can provide for the unrepentant is to allow them to continue to live. And that's exactly what God does. Our world today is filled, filled. It's a majority of unrepentant people who stand defiantly in the face of God's truth and say, I don't care. I don't want to know. Leave me alone. Let me do my own thing. And yet God is still gracious and merciful and not smiting us and them instantly at the depth of the sin that we are guilty of. Verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain's punishment is carried out. He's banished from the presence of the Lord. The city name here, Nod, is a play on the Hebrew word Nad, meaning wanderer, which refers to the sentence against Cain. Scripture does not speak again of Nod, and no specific location is known. It may simply be that Nod is meant to say that wherever Cain sojourned would be called the land of the wanderer. Thinking about this, we aren't told ultimately what happens to Cain. We know something about his lineage and his offspring. Did Cain repent? Probably not. The New Testament uniformly speaks of Cain in the way of negative phraseology, like in Jude 11, the way of Cain, and in, uh, in, um, implicating rebellion and sinfulness. Uh, he's called in 1 John 3.12, who was of the evil one and, murder, and murdered his brother. And then again in Matthew 25, 23-35, Jesus contrasts him with the righteous Abel. So very likely Cain did not repent, as we'll look at the next time he rebelled against his sentence set up shop, and we'll actually look at some of what came from the line of Cain. And what we see here is that Cain is going to go on, he's going to have a family, he's going to experience the blessing of grace in a family. That's another part of what the unrepentant experience and enjoy as a part of God's grace is family. As we know, under the curse of sin, family can be a great blessing or it can be a great difficulty. But I want to speak to this very, very briefly, very, very briefly, very quickly in case you're not here next week. So when Cain goes out, we're told in the next section here that he uh, takes a wife and people say, well, where did she come from? Well, we read this thinking like, well, the next week or the next month, Cain came across this woman. There's another community, there's another civilization out there, and he found this woman and got married. No, it didn't happen that way. If you remember, the early days in the book of Genesis, people lived for hundreds of years. And so it's very likely that Cain wandered and sojourned alone for decades, if not hundreds of years, before civilization grew... And so where was Cain going to find a wife? Well, what did God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So it's very likely that 
Cain marries a sister or a niece or some other relative, and we go, ooh, that's yucky. That's yucky. Well, it is. But there's no prohibition against that until the Mosaic Law is given. And how else is the earth going to be populated other than the first family marrying and multiplying from within their own family line? It's one of the mysteries. It's one of the things that we can't fully understand or explain. But by faith, we just accept this was the way that God designed it to be. And we'll talk a little bit more detail about that. But thinking about this as we close today. Cain was so rebellious and so defiant that he rejected God's rejection of his offering. He rejected God's encouragement and his warning. And then he rejected the punishment that God handed out to him. And we might think, well, boy, that's just one bad guy, but we're not that far removed from being just that bad. It is only the goodness and the grace of God that has enabled us to know who He is, to know the grace and the forgiveness that He provides, and to accept it by faith to be made the children of God, the sons and the daughters of God, given His very Spirit to indwell us and seal us for an eternity with Him in heaven. Instead of shaking our fist at the depravity of Cain, we ought to be thankful to God that we have not yet fallen that far by the grace of God. What you and I enjoy today, what we take for granted today, is simply the manifestation of God's grace in our life, the the multiplication of His faithfulness to us throughout all of civilization. God is good all the time. Even in the face of something as treacherous as Cain's sin, God is still good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.